This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. We're continuing a short Christmas series, a Romans Christmas, looking this morning at Romans chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. It's page 942 in your pew Bibles. Hear the word of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to read it, to memorize it, to meditate on it, to study it. And Father, we pray as we think about these things this morning that your Spirit would lead us into a greater understanding and appreciation of this passage before us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas brings people together. We will travel miles and put up with Hartsfield Airport and heavy traffic to be with family and be with friends at Christmas. If we can't be present in person, then we'll call our loved ones on Christmas Day just to say hello and to wish them a Merry Christmas. Unfortunately, there are always going to be those that we're not able to be with at Christmas because uh, we simply can't travel to where they are, having been separated by death, and Christmas has a way of amplifying the reality of that separation and the pain of that loss. One of the most remarkable instances of Christmas bringing people together people who, in fact, were trying to kill each other, uh, was the strange Christmas truce of 1914 during World War I. Uh, British troops in trenches uh, opposite their enemies were surprised on Christmas Eve to hear coming from the German trenches the Christmas carol, Stille Nacht, Silent Night and other Christmas carols arising. And the Scottish troops began to answer with Christmas carols of their own. And soon one side was shouting out Christmas greetings to the other side. Before long, uh, soldiers from both sides were greeting each other in the otherwise deadly no-man's land, that area between the opposing trenches. Gifts were exchanged. Addresses were swapped, fallen soldiers' bodies were retrieved, burials were held with the reading together of the 23rd Psalm, 
even had uh, athletic games break out in that interaction among the troops. One soldier, British soldier, described it this way in a letter back home. He said, just before dinner, I had the pleasure of shaking hands with several Germans. A party of them came halfway over to us, so several of us went out to them. I exchanged one of my baklavas for a hat. I also got a button off one of their tunics. We exchanged smokes, etc., and had a decent chat. They say they won't fire tomorrow if we don't, so I suppose we shall get a bit of a holiday, perhaps. After exchanging autographs wishing them, uh, and wishing them a happy new year, we departed and came back and had our dinner. We can hardly believe that we've been firing at them for the last week or two. It all seems so strange. Well, strange indeed. Uh, even warring soldiers recognize the strangeness of shooting at one another, and they didn't even know each other, and certainly the incongruity of trying to kill one another on Christmas Day. Why? Well, because Christmas is not about hostility. It's about reconciliation. It's about coming together. Christmas is about the celebration of the birth of the Savior who reconciles, who reconciles people to each other, certainly, but only because he first reconciles sinful man to a holy God. Now, lots of people celebrate Christmas, and we'll celebrate Christmas uh, this month, but the truth we need to understand is this. We cannot truly enjoy Christmas for what it is until we ourselves have experienced personally that reconciliation with God that Christmas represents. Now, as we look at our text here this morning, Paul speaks of that restoration of our relationship with God in terms of three stages or three phases. First, he speaks here of how we were enemies of God. That's the word that he uses there in verse 10. For if while we were enemies, who? Enemies with who? Well, enemies with God. While we were enemies. Now, most people, especially non-Christians, don't think of themselves or see themselves as enemies of God, and yet that is exactly how the Bible describes us in our relationship to God apart from Christ. There is a hostility there, and it's a hostility that, that goes both ways. In our sinful condition, we are hostile to God. Earlier in Romans, in Romans chapter 1, as Paul reaches the end of that chapter and he piles their adjective after adjective describing our fallen, sinful condition, he includes this one, haters of God. In Romans 8, 7, he says this, For the mind set on the flesh, that is our mind in its fallen, sinful condition, the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot do so. We're enemies of God. By nature we are hostile to God. We count God our enemy. Now, there are many people who think in their sinfulness, non-Christians, who think that they want God. But if they're honest with themselves, they will see that God, and they will acknowledge that God is a threat to them. We want Him, we think, but what we really want is benefits He could give us. But we don't really want Him. We don't, in our fallen nature, really want His rule. We don't want His law governing our lives. We want to be God. 
We want to set our own laws. We want to live life the way we want to. Jesus illustrates this, this resistance to God, this hostility to God, in a parable he tells in Luke 19. He describes there a nobleman who went off to a far country to receive a kingdom. And he calls together ten of his servants, he gives them ten minas, and he says to them, stay here and engage in business until I come back. And you know the rest of the parable, he comes back and they have to give an accounting to him for what they did with those minas. But there's a subplot here. His citizens hated him, this nobleman who was going away, and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. That's you. That's me. In our sin, in our rebellion against God, we do not want God to reign over us. We don't want Christ's rule over us because his rule is a threat to our own self-rule. He is an enemy. Well, it's not just that we are hostile to God and count God as an enemy. It's also here, and this is the truly frightening part of this, is that God considers us in our sin, apart from Christ, considers us an enemy. God is hostile to us. Not in an emotional or, or reactionary kind of way, but he is hostile to us as we have rebelled against him, and in his justice, in his holiness, there is there a settled opposition to our sin, to our rebellion. And this is really the far more important side of the equation. You see, God's not at all threatened by man's hostility. That's like a mouse raging at a lion. God is not at all concerned about our hostility, but his hostility toward us, that he counts us, apart from Christ, as an enemy, is something that should be of grave concern to you and to me. Well, this is the first stage. We are enemies of God. God, man, separated. There's enmity. There is hostility. Do you see that? If you're not a Christian today, you and God are at war. There is hostility. There's a separation. God is not your friend. He is an enemy. And he is opposed to you. And he is opposed to your self-will. He is opposed to your self-rule. He is opposed to you being a law unto yourself. You see that. You understand that. And even today as Christians, what are we to make of this? Does this no longer apply? Well, thankfully, by God's grace, if you are a Christian today, you're no longer an enemy of God. But how much more as we, as we understand that former condition? Should our hearts well up in gratitude to God that we are no longer counted among his enemies? How much more should that well up in worship and praise and thanksgiving to him that we are not what we once were, and that is enemies of God. Well, that's the first stage that Paul lists here. Uh, reconciliation involves bringing those who are separated together, and we certainly were separated from God. But the second stage or phase that he mentions here is that we were reconciled to God. Look again at verse 10. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. To be reconciled means to be brought back together. It means that that hostility, that 
being enemies that separated us has been removed and two people who were upset with each other or angry with each other uh, have been brought back together. They're once again friends. And that's exactly what Paul says happened uh, between us and God. How did it happen? Well, he says we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Now, that is a, 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 a statement, an idea that occurs in any number of places in the Bible, and certainly in Paul's writings. Turn with me over to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. Some magnificent statements of this that help to explain what Paul says so compactly in Romans. Colossians 1, verse 20. Paul says that in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, that is through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. Turn back a couple books to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 verse 14. So we can back up, start in verse 13. Ephesians 2, 13, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, alienated, far off from God, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the wall of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both, that is, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There you have both reconciliation of man to man, Jew and Gentile in Christ, and together reconciliation with God. Jesus' death, the cross, kills the hostility. It takes away that which separates us from God. And then one last reference I want you to look at, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 Paul says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How does the cross bring us back together. Well, it satisfies both sides. At the cross, Jesus pays for the guilt, the stain of our sin, of our rebellion, through his death on the cross and our death with him, united to him by the Spirit as Christians. He has broken the power of sin over us. But he's atoned for it. He paid for it. He took the punishment we deserved. And on the other hand, it satisfies God because God's justice is satisfied. God's wrath is poured out on our sin in the person of Christ. So our sin is paid for, God's holiness and his justice is satisfied, and so what separates us has been removed, and we were able to be reconciled, brought back together. And not only that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we are given the ministry of making that reconciliation available to others. Now, Paul speaks as an apostle, certainly in an official way, that's his calling uh, and his task, but that's the delight and the privilege of every Christian 
to make known to those separated from God that they too can be right with God through what Jesus has done on the cross. And so Paul speaks here of being brought together, reconciled through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we receive it? Well, Paul, Paul's answer could not be more plain in Acts 16. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not just to acknowledge he existed, but to believe in him in the sense of trusting in him alone as our Savior. Following him alone as our Lord. Owning him as our King. Saying, yes, I will have this Lord Jesus to be king over me. And Paul says how much more in verse 10, the second part of the verse, the point is just that God having done the difficult thing, reconciling us to himself when we were enemies, well, how much more is it easy for him to save us when we are now his friends, to keep us, to hold us in that resurrection life of the Lord Jesus Christ. If God could reach out to us and reconcile us when we were opposed to him, How much easier is it for him to save us and keep us now that we are his friends? Well, there's a third stage that Paul describes here in Romans 5, that we are enemies of God, we've been reconciled to God, but he also goes on to speak of our rejoicing in God. Look at verse 11. More than that, he says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, no mere begrudged ceasefire is this. Some of you children, and certainly you parents have experienced this, where you children, you know, you're going at it with your brother or sister. Then your parents come, and they break up the fight, and they try to figure out what's going on, and they take the two of you and say, now apologize to each other. And you kind of look at each other and say, sorry, sorry. And then you go your separate ways. Is that peace? No, it's probably more of just a ceasefire. And it's even worse if you part with a, you know, kind of a glare at each other that means you wait till next time. You wait till later. Well, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not as though the problem's been dealt with, with and now God goes his way and we go our way. This is more like a husband and wife who have had a fight and there's that tension and there's that wall. They truly love each other and they are pained by that separation. And finally, they can't take that anymore, and they apologize to each other, and they ask each other's forgiveness, and there is a joy that that relationship is restored. There is a joy in each other for who they are. And that's not exactly the same thing, but more approximates what Paul is talking about here. More than just reconciliation with God, we rejoice in Him and who He is and what He's done for us to bring us together. Because you see, that's the amazing thing that God rejoices in us, that it was God's desire to bring about reconciliation, that even though he was the party offended against, the one who was sinned against, he's the one who takes the initiative to send his son to restore us to himself because he wants us to be in fellowship with him. That's the amazing part. Yes, we should certainly want reconciliation with God, and yes, we should rejoice that God has done for us what he's done. But the amazing thing is it's God who took the initiative. It's God who wanted us back in relationship with himself. That's what we learn from the prodigal son. When the son shows up and starts to give his rehearsed speech of contrition, Father, I'm sorry, I'm not worthy to be called one of your sons. Make me one of your... The father is just running to, to meet him and just embraces him and welcomes him home. And that's a picture of the father's joy in welcoming a repentant sinner back into fellowship with him. That's the amazing thing. God has taken 
the initiative. We rejoice in God, and he's done this through Christ. You see, the Bible knows nothing of a relationship with God apart from Jesus. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's why Jesus said, no one can come to the Father except through me. The world likes to speak of God and knowing God and seeking God, but the only way to know the Father is through the Son. And so we've seen this progression. Enemies of God, reconciled to God, and now rejoicing in God. Christmas is about reconciliation. It's about people coming together. And it does have a way of bringing people together, whether it's family or friends or even soldiers who are at war with each other. But you see, only, that's true only, because at Christmas, God came into this world in Christ, in that baby, that he might die and reconcile us to him. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the Savior who reconciles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, and indeed we rejoice in you for your grace, that you so loved the world, you gave your only begotten Son. Father, we celebrate his birth. We thank you for the amazing way he came into this world. But even more, we thank you for the amazing grace, the amazing heart that you had, that you would send him because you wanted to reconcile us to yourself. And we praise you for the amazing and complete way in which our Lord Jesus has accomplished that. And Father, we pray that at this Christmas time and and indeed throughout the year, we would be rejoicing in you, who you are, for what you've done. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.